Hello, my name is Steve D'Agostino, and my co-host Anne Fernald and I welcome you to the Twice Over podcast, because to teach is to learn twice over. In this episode, Ideologies of Teaching, we are joined by John Craven, Associate Professor of Science Education at Fordham University, who shares his thoughts about what we mean when we talk about teaching and how that meaning affects our instructional choices. Today we're talking to John Craven, who's a professor in the Graduate School of Education. John is a scientist and a science educator, and I'm so excited to talk to you because you and Steve had a conversation maybe about six weeks ago, and Steve was like, oh, we got to get John on the podcast. He was so excited. So this is the first time, John, you and I have ever met. So welcome to the Twice Over podcast. We're really happy to have you here. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Can you tell us a little bit about how your work changed during the pandemic? It's been an interesting journey because like many of us in, in higher education, we don't just wear one hat. I can speak to certain pods that I've found myself in. The first pod that comes to mind is my work with distance education with our distance learning program for elementary teachers. So I've been involved with a certification program that's been offered completely online through the Graduate School of Education. And I've been involved with that probably two and a half years, three years or so. I was very comfortable in the digital teaching environment. So, so that's one pod. The other pod, though, is the group of students who were our traditional students who would be coming to the brick and mortar classroom, the face to face. And the difficulty I had with that class, you know, those classes or that, that type of student was that they had signed up for a face to face educational program and found themselves in a distance education program. I think there was a struggle for some students because if you enlist into a distance education program, you kind of know what you're getting into a little bit, right? You kind of know it's going to be digital, Zoom meetings, async perhaps, synchronous. You, you don't know, but it's going to be through the computer. And um, so there, there was more of a tolerance, I think, on the parts of the students who signed up for that program versus the ones who have found themselves in it. How did you gently ease the anxieties of the people who were thrust into suddenly having to figure out how to unmute on Zoom? And The best thing I, I can say is you just have to develop a rapport with the students. You have to develop a sense that you know who they are. And there's a lot more, I think, tallying on the side. So you know, I have my iPad to the side here and I have my roster and I'm kind of ticking off like who's participating, who's not participating, because you can get so caught up in just the mechanics, the log logistics of working in a digital environment, teaching in, in a digital environment that, you know, you have the one or two students who are engaging and you're thrilled, right? But you have to remember there are people... <laughs> in that classroom. It's very easy to hide in a Zoom room. I noticed that toward the end of my semester this spring where I was so grateful to have any kind of engagement at all. I mean, I had an amazing class, but I was so grateful to have any kind of engagement that I'd lost track of the very thing you just talked about, of having the roster next to you and just kind of keeping a tally of gosh, we haven't heard from Steve since this podcast started recording. Maybe Steve should say something. 
I've actually contemplated teaching an entire meeting of the course in Zoom with my camera and microphone muted, just like only through the chat. <laughs> I love that idea. So like sort of, and then like talk to the students, like try that, probably not the whole session, but just like as a provocation to log in and just do it that way. And then try to talk with the students about, you know, what was that like? How did they feel about that? Like what was missing? What was absent? To get them to understand the gradations of presence, right? Yes, right, right, right. That's a good point. That's really, yeah, I like that. What I've noticed as a real centering of instructional literacy in the conversations over the past few months, I think we moved from where you began in, in your comments about technology to then really thinking about, okay, let's, how do I teach in this environment? I, I understand how to manipulate the tools now, but like, how do I build community, develop meaningful relationships, include people, all of the kind of humanistic components of teaching and learning. And you said, you said something, a, a phrase that I found so resonant, which I'm hoping you'll talk a little bit more about, which, it, which was ideologies of teaching. I, I'm not sure if you remember saying this, but we're in, in one of our conversations working with, with a doctoral candidate, and you were talking about transmission models of teaching and how those are really privileged in the way that the technology tools are designed, right? That Zoom right. is really well-suited for transmitting information. And so there's a certain ideology of teaching embedded in that design. Could, could you talk a little bit more about what that might mean and how it affects the way we experienced the past two semesters of teaching online? Sure, let me be thoughtful on this and, and uh, try to be as clear as possible. As teachers, what we, what we believe to be the purpose and function of teaching deeply shapes how we go about teaching and what we teach. And how we teach deeply affects what students learn. So there's these intricate connections. My ide ideology is such that I believe that education should be to empower students to become lifelong learners themselves. And to do that, we have to get them to engage in a independent, self-directed form of education, where if we can get students to raise the good questions about things in their fields, all right, or a particular topic, they could be off and running and learning things that we can't even imagine. One of the challenges that Steve and I faced specifically with the science faculty at Fordham this year had to do with anxieties around cheating. And cheating was rife in some of the larger science classes. And I think part of why it was so prevalent, well, there were a lot of contributing factors, right? There's the anxiety about getting into medical school or doing well enough to apply. That's very real and the necessity of having an outstanding grade to get achieve those professional goals and then there's the fact that a lot of instructors are still teaching multiple choice tests right so there are right and wrong answers so i'm wondering if you can kind of talk about how you think about these challenges right there's a kind of interlocking set of things that people face that have to do with the difficulty of crafting an assignment that's independent and self-directed. Yeah. The difficulty of teaching it 
and the difficulty of assessing it and all of that, especially in the sciences. And how do you think about that when you're talking to K to 12 people? And then how do you, how does that translate? Is it different at the university level? You've laid so much on the table right there. I am very sympathetic to the constraints that science and STEM faculty have when it comes to their curriculum programs. And that is, there is this, I guess, driving mechanism that these kids have to acquire a ton of information. And it's up to that faculty member to really facilitate that process. I think that's a, a, a little bit of a trap, though, that, that approach. So let me, let me tread lightly here because I don't have all the answers. But if we set up our curriculum such that it's easy to cheat, then I, I, I struggle with the, the question of, was that a well-designed curriculum? I think that's a great question. So then, and if it's, if it's easy to cheat, how do we develop intrinsic motivation to learn? In my own experience, I, I struggle with this myself because we live in an educational system. We function in, a, in an educational system that is all about grades and grading. It's a transactional system. And you come and you pay your tuition and comply uh, and you will largely do well, all right? It's transactional. I hope that you evaluate me nicely on my teacher evaluation. But in my own classes, I figure, let's do this. I, I run my classes more like seminars. And if I'm in a seminar, it can't be grade-oriented. It can't be about proving what you know, but improving what you know. So my classes generally are project-based. They are generally driven by the interests of the students. We identify the topics at the beginning of the semester um, in some classes that uh, are worth exploring or that the students are interested in, in exploring. And I, I move them through a process of question storming about these topics they're interested in, beginning methods of, of research to find out more about th those topics, and then transitioning them into creating something, whether that's a paper or an exhibit or an artifact, something that demonstrates their understanding, that they can turnkey their understandings to an audience. You just used a word that I haven't heard before, and I can kind of guess what it means, but you said question storming, which I have to think is like brainstorming. But can you say a little bit more about what it looks like to question storm, if, that, if I can use that word? Sure. No, there's a, there's some really, really interesting research on question storming. So brainstorming, most of us know, you know, you come in and you have a problem and let's brainstorm a solution. It's much, much more fruitful to take either a problem um, or a topic and let's just throw out questions. Let's just throw out questions that, that come to mind with that topic or with that problem. And this is a technique that's used in business quite a bit. It's a technique that's used more in some of the high performing school systems in countries other than the United States. And it usually leads to a very fruitful pathway of inquiry that ends in a better place than brainstorming. Because now let's just pick our one best brainstorm and let's pursue that. Do you, as part of question storming, kind of help students start to think about categories of questions? 
Sure. I often have conversations about like, this is something we can look up right now and get the answer to versus this is something that's going to require some reading versus this is something that's fascinating and impossible to solve, right? To take kind of three broad categories of questions, right? Sure. That's going to come up probably in a question storming session too, right? Right. We have survived because we're very good at categorizing things. That's, that's an apple. Those are fruits. You know, this is a dog. You know, we, we categorize this. So it is a process. And my, but I have been criticized in the past because we've spent maybe three sessions just working on that, the, the questions. Now, three sessions out of 15 sessions, you might, one might say, there's a lot more content that you could cover. I'm not interested in that. So it's, it is a process. The process usually begins by a very messy pic picture, like a gallery walk or in the digital environment. I, I love the, the application concept board. So we're all in there and we're throwing questions around. We are looking at each other's. And then what happens is class will end and I'll go and I'll take those and I'll start moving the questions around and, and kind of sorting them. And then the next phase would be let's take these questions. There seems to be some categories um, that we have, right? And you can classify the categories as easy to answer, low yield uh, fruit, right? Easy to answer, uh, high yield fruit, uh, hard to answer, low yield, hard to answer, high yield. You know, so we can look at those, all right? That's, that's my four two by two matrix I usually use. But then what, what I'll do is I'll start forming pods, give the students then some choice. I, I have them vote on questions that they like. Let's take a, a tally of which of these questions seem really palatable and interesting. And then we move into a process of let's start having you work together on some of these questions. So they're, you know, the, the students then become sorted in a way into their interest areas. And they start working on questions that they have some very common interest in. And by then, they're off and running. When I'm listening to you talk about this question storming, I think from the learner perspective, it's much easier to ask questions and come up with ideas. In a brainstorm, there's pressure to contribute some valuable idea. And there's a reward where they're, oh, that's a good one. Let's write that down. Mm -hmm. All of them don't get written down in a brainstorming session. Oh yeah, Anne said that already. That's just a restatement. But in a questioning set, there are no, they're all just questions. And so it generates like a, a massive participation that's, that's very low risk. Right. But also to get them to reconceptualize the discussion space as not a competitive environment. I experienced brainstorming as a quasi-competitive environment. Right. Yes, yeah, right, right. Who has who has the best, you know, solution? Right, right. Um, we can't help but get excited at a really good idea. We circle it, we draw, you know, it's bigger, it's written bigger. You know, we send all these signals that may be intentional or unintentional, but I think the students with all of their understanding of being a student, engage almost automatically in approval-seeking behavior. And yet, and, and yet, if we could get like the biology major thinking about good questions, if the student is interested and they have the questions, they will acquire the content that we're, we're hoping they acquire at, at the outstart of our course. You know, and our focus here so far has been at the beginning of the class, 
Um, but then you have to kind of fast forward too, because then you can't turn around and say, okay, now let's sit down and take it the, the, the final exam. So you have to be consistent. And that's what, you know, when I say, Steve and Ann, about your, your ideology, you really have to have a really clear picture of what it is you're trying to accomplish, the methods by which you will accomplish that, and the methods by which you'll assess that. And it has to be, there has to be internal consistency for that. Because otherwise, that sense of trust will break down real fast with students, right? So what does that mean? At the end of the semester, for a, a fair number of my courses, I have exit interviews. And the students have to tell me what it is they did, you know, what did they learn? What did they accomplish? And if you had to grade yourself, what would be the grade? I mean, if you're a teacher and you know what a student did, you know, if you were able to see inside their head, if you were looking at their artifacts, you would give them a grade. So look at yourself like that. And so that grading policy has to be consistent with the approach to teaching. It's like having the students tell you the story of the semester. Tell me your story of this course. In all fairness, and quite frankly, there are flaws in that method. I tell the students, you have to be like, you have to take the Goldilocks approach. Don't be too hard on yourself. Don't be too easy on yourself. You know, you've got to find a way. But I cannot tell you how many students that I've had that have never been in, placed in the situation of grading themselves, reflecting on what they've done to the point where they identify what, what grade. So by and large, if we're looking at a, like a normal distribution, most of the time, my policy works for my students. There'll be students that I know I probably would think that, well, if I were probably the grader, I would probably say, I see you as probably a C student. Your paper really is, you know, like a C-level paper. But in the end, what harm will I cause if it's one class in the course of 30 classes that they get a chance to design a project on their own, move through that, and then sit down and talk about what they've accomplished? I'm probably not doing a whole lot of harm if the one or two, you know, little minnows escape the net. Because the ones who really are impacted uh, will be impacted in a very, very, very powerful way. I think the challenge is to get the students to do the thing rather than learn about the thing. It's just much easier to teach the students about a thing. And that's why, you know, I mean, it opens up a whole, a whole world of, of questions, right? So, I mean, it, I can look at a transcript. Does, that, does an A tell me anything about a student? or a B or a C, it doesn't tell me anything. But if I had a portfolio and I'm looking at work, uh, then that's something. And in our own doctoral program, quite frankly, you know, I'm sure there might be some faculty members who will say, uh, wait a minute, um, that person got an A in your class, but really was struggling with writing. Fine, I agree with that, I agree. So maybe we shouldn't be looking at the grades for classes, but asking students to demonstrate you know, provide some artifacts of their writing to demonstrate competencies. Uh, that's not to say we're throwing grades out. That's not what I'm saying. All right. But what I'm saying, let's, can we at least supplement our decision about whether a student should be matriculated into a program uh, by looking beyond just grades, but looking at the actual artifacts themselves? 
Well, one of the things that's so interesting, everything you're saying, and I'm, I'm about ready to throw grades out. I'm really, um, so I'm very I'm much resonating with what you're saying and not at all wanting to pull you back and say, what about the C? It's important that we preserve, you know, the curve yeah, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. That's not where I am at all. Quite the contrary. But I feel like one of the main benefits of this kind of more generous, more collaborative mode of come of assessing someone's work in a course for the semester has to do with issues of equity and inclusion right and yes. you've been talking a lot about specific kind of gatekeeping barriers that i think disproportionately hurt underrepresented students right how do you think about these issues of equity and inclusion and in assessment um and and has that been part of why you've embraced this more, I'm calling it a more collaborative mode of assessment like the exit interview. Equity and inclusion runs deep in my core values. And that comes from a lifetime of experience working with a very wide range of people in different cultures, in different social and economic situations. And you really kind of have to be brave in the classroom to open up dialogue about equity and inclusion and fairness of grading, all the biases that we carry around that we don't know we carry around and we, they're, they're implicitly held. You know, I learn a lot each semester from my students. I'm thinking, uh, yeah, I'm being very equitable and very sensitive to access, diversity, equality. And, and yet, you know, I'll have students kind of point things out well, you know, look at the people you were asking us to read or look at the, the models that you've used in the short vignettes or videos that you've used. You know, they weren't totally representative. And, you know, sometimes I, my initial reaction will be, but I'm trying so hard. But, but the fact is that, yeah, we, it's, it's a constant struggle that we have to pay attention to. But I think it goes back to this rapport that when you're, when you're working with students, that the focus is on rapport and having conversations about their ideas, those conversations can, I think, will more likely come up. Because quite frankly, I don't think we handle conversations very well. I don't, I don't think we're very prepared to handle conversations well. And when I say that, I'm not insulting anyone. I don't mean to insult anyone. I think that people like myself, we need better mechanisms to open up dialogue in a safe way. And we see that problem at the national level in all kinds of arenas. John, one of the things I, I hear in your answers is this struggle that I feel a lot, so maybe I'm putting this on you, but is power. I really struggle with the power of my position as their teacher and all of the immediately the ethical and moral implications of that power and how I use it. There are effects of how I choose to use the power in the classroom. And I think, you know, Anne ends every podcast asking about your favorite teacher, but I'm sure we can all conjure up a teacher that just crushed us. And so I don't want to inadvertently crush anyone or create a context where people can be wounded in some way or feel excluded. So I had to email progress reports and I picked out a few students who just haven't been keeping up with the work. And what that does is it sends a report to their academic advisor who reaches out to the students, right? I have to do this, it's bureaucratic. But the, Absolutely. 
the students experience this as like, oh my God, I'm in big trouble. So I got like eight apologetic emails and I have to tell them, no, 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 that, that you're not, this has nothing to do with my feelings, right? You don't, you don't have to be sorry. This is me attempting to let you know that, you know, you're going to get really, really behind. You're just a little behind now. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So it's really trying to think, to be empathetic, right? To think about how the student is going to hear what I'm communicating. And the bureaucratic system in which we operate that lacks that kind of empathy. And, and I think that you're hinting at that, not just in the conversation space, but really in, in the broader context in which my class takes place. What I hear you say, Steve, is really about first, we've, we've got to empower the students, firstly, um, at the beginning of a class saying, I'm here to help guide you, to bring you on this journey, but you're responsible. And if I distribute that power of self-evaluation and picking projects and, and things like that, that is also placing more responsibility on you. And so these check-ins, I agree. I, I hear that because I've heard it, especially in this pandemic year. There's apologies because it's not compliance. No, it's, it's not a matter of compliance. I really am caring about you. <laughs> and I, I want to make sure that you understand it's, it's your responsibility. I'm hoping that you are recognizing where you're falling short a little bit and what you need to do to turn that around. And what can I do to help you in that situation? One of the things that happened in my class this past semester is I had students do about 10 very short writing assignments because I believe that as an English teacher, practice writing matters. But I didn't have any deadlines, but I said there are about 10 of these. So if you do one a week, you'll be done by mm -hmm. the time you're working on your final project. And then at various points, I would say, it'd be good if you had about three done. It'd be good if you had about seven done. And I really wanted them to take responsibility for that keeping track, but I would periodically tell them. And it's such an interesting thing when you shift more responsibility onto the student, it's disorienting for them because they're quite accustomed to writing the kind of abject apologetic email, Steve, that you described that was triggered by this bureaucratic form letter, right? Oh, I'm so sorry. And I think, especially now that I've been teaching for so many decades, my feelings absolutely aren't hurt. Like my feelings aren't a part of this project, right? If a student is not completing work in a timely fashion, my experience tells me it's going to be challenging for them to absolutely. earn the grade that they want. And that's what I'm trying to convey. I want to circle back to this other issue about equity, access, diversity too. And I think this pandemic year, opened the eyes of certainly me, but thousands of teachers, because at the K-12 level, teachers found that their student may have been in a one bedroom apartment, yes, one device, and maybe two or three siblings that were also doing Zoom. And they were on maybe an iPhone because there's no computer just the access to space to learn, the resources to learn, I think we're really drawn into high focus uh, for many, many um, 
teachers and, and administrators, certainly at the K-12 level this year. I'm so glad that you said that because I wanted to make sure that we had a chance to tease that very thing out a little bit. One of the things that Steve and I've been trying to talk about in what we're calling season two of this podcast, which is the, of which this conversation is a part, is what are the lessons that you want to carry forward from what we've learned in the pandemic? So I predict that it may become increasingly challenging as we go back into brick and mortar classrooms to hold on to that awareness. And I'm wondering how you're thinking about helping the teachers whom you're working with hold on to the awareness of the inequities at home that won't be as, as readily visible. You won't be able to tell who's on a phone, who doesn't have a nice laptop, who has a tiny apartment. Well, I mean, one of the first things that comes to my mind is a topic that you know, has been debated for years and years and years. And, you know, Alfie Cohen writes about this and, and that is homework. Let's, let's start with low hanging fruit, homework. We have to question the value it holds, the nature of the tasks that we assign and the access to resources that are required to accomplish those tasks. And so as a science teacher, I, I really I'm not a fan of science fairs because what is the science fair? The science fair is a a really, really good performance assessment if you're measuring resources at home. It's all about the parents, right? And I saw that at my own children's science fairs. Absolutely. Who are the parents who are college educated and underemployed who can buy a bunch of craft supplies? And building on top of that is the notion of you know, the summer homework packets that go home now. My wife and I always kind of tease each other and we say, well, what does our homework look like this this summer? Now, I deeply respect, I deeply respect the teachers who are assembling these materials because they are, they they do have the students in their focus. And I deeply believe that they are there to, to help them bridge between one year and another year and to, you know, hit the road running. But I also realized that my own kids, if I wasn't on them, they wouldn't be doing it. That means me or my wife being on them, them having a space to carve out to, to do that. And I mean, there's just lots of questions about do all students have access to the resources that are needed to accomplish a summer task that's given to them. What can faculty instructors in higher education learn from teachers in K-12? One point, and we've, we've circled around it, and that is there's a great deal more attention on performance-based assessments, project-based assessments at the K-12 level, I think, than there are in higher education. And that might be a sweeping assertion that I can't support, which I would mark on my student's paper, unsupported assertion, but you've asked my opinion. So I think if we can think, uh, if we can look at some of the models, especially in, in high school STEM that are, uh, and, and mathematics, in which they're, they uh, are designing performance-based assessments, the students are presenting their, their projects 
uh, defending their projects in front of a panel of teachers. And that panel of teachers is there to assess and evaluate the students. That would be one lesson that could be learned. I'll leave it at that. I would, I think that let's take one lesson, a low hanging fruit. Can we design a performance-based assessment task that has our students doing something and then presenting that in front of us? When you think about a teacher whose lessons you still carry with you to this day, who comes to mind? And can you tell us a little bit about why that person mattered to you? I have several teachers. And the phrase that I carry is they are on a committee in my head. I have a member from high school. I have two members from, well, one actually really powerful uh, from my master's in geological sciences. I have two from my doctoral program. So there's not one teacher, but there's a committee that I have. And what I tell my students is I, I want to be on your committee in your head. And I want you to fire the committee members who, who have earned a place in there um, that shouldn't be there in terms of models of, of educators. I won't name a teacher, but I, but I have a committee of them. I love that. What an original answer. And it's such a cool one. And I have, I've fired one of my internal committee members and it's <laughs> been very liberating for me. <laughs> very liberating. I would just encourage teachers to think about their own ideology about teaching because that ideology has a great impact on your students. They will walk away with beliefs of their own about what, what it means to learn, what learning is, and what teaching is based on what you do as a teacher, which in turn is based on largely your ideology. John, thank you so much for your time. It's uh, been really wonderful getting to know you a little bit in this slightly stylized way, but I'm so glad to have you as a colleague here at Fordham and thanks for spending an hour with us. Twice Over Podcast is available on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Spotify, with new episodes appearing twice each week. For host and guest bios and show notes, please visit our website, TwiceOverPodcast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at TwiceOver1 or email us at TwiceOverPodcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening.